I just like countries to stop fighting with each other, you know? Like we're just, we're a singular species that lives on a singular planet in this vast universe. And like, we really need to figure out how to all kind of, you know, get along. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Glory Media, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from each other, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Patty, it's so nice to see you for the second time in one week. How lucky am I? Um, how are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm lucky. I got to go to you know your incredible event, uh, met lots of wonderful people, and it was just such a it, unbelievably kind of diverse, intersectional uh, group. A true collision uh, of you know young and emerging, talented people from so many different sectors. It was fantastic. So congratulations. Well, we thank you so much, and we were so uh, honored that you could take some time out of your what I imagine to be an extremely busy schedule while you're in town here in Toronto um, to come and say hi. And it was just nice to give you um, our own experience from our end. So thank you so much for popping by. Um, so you're back in town in Toronto for a very special reason. Uh, just a little bit of a preamble. You're the founder and CEO of two of the fastest growing tech events in the world, Web Summit in Lisbon and Collision, which has been in Toronto since 2019. Now, over 60,000 people who attended the last two events are well familiar with their business, but we also have a contingent of our audience that is outside of the tech and business space as well. So for them, what's uh, your elevator pitch, if you could describe it really quickly? Great question. I'll, I'll use the words of others like the you know Financial Times or the Guardian or the New York Times referring to it as you know the Olympics of tech, the world's largest tech conference, um, Glastonbury for geeks. Glastonbury is a major music festival uh, yes. in Great Britain. So that that hopefully gives people a, a quick feel. I love it. I love it. Um, while I was doing my research, uh, your bio online states that you, quote, help engineer serendipity, end quote. Can you unpack that? And like, what does that mean to be, what does it mean to be serendipitous in Patty's world? Great question. People go to our events um, to meet each other, to network. And we work hard building software and experiences that will increase the likelihood um, that people will um meet with each other ser effectively serendipitously. So in the background, we're trying to engineer things, both using software and different experiences uh, to increase the likelihood that um, you meet the right people when you attend our, our, our events. And if you take Web Summit, for example, that's 70,000 people. It's an extraordinarily large number of people from almost every country uh, in the world, all of them, for the most part, involved in building extraordinary um, tech companies, often startups, uh, and they're eager to find investors, find great journalists to tell their stories, find potential partners, customers. And our job is to try and help them on that journey. So that's that's what we do. I mean, it is truly incredible the amount of people that you're able to bring together. And to me, Collision is not only just a, a platform to talk about technology and talk about culture and work, but really more than that, I would feel like a community of people where you are able to facilitate these serendipitous moments for business building or learning or just 
connections in general from people all over the world. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's it. And uh, Collision, we started our first event in uh, in Ireland uh, over a decade ago, really 14 years ago at this point. And, you know, the first event, 150 people showed up and you know, grew quite quickly over time. We Collision started in <clears throat> originally in the United States and we moved it to Toronto in 2019 for a whole host of reasons. And um, it's, uh, you know, uh, our event in Europe has its own flavor and our event in Collision is very much infused with the city uh, of Toronto that is, you know, you know, factually or statistically the most cosmopolitan uh, city in the world. Um, it's just it's it's a sort of wow destination for people to come to the the idea that you can go i went to a jamaican fusion restaurant two two days ago i think you know for some extraordinary food like i i can't even find one jamaican restaurant in uh uh in ireland and, <laughs> you know there's just there's probably dozens of them in toronto but then there's hundreds of restaurants representing every cuisine and geography on the planet and it it makes for an incredible melting pot uh to bring people from all over the world here to um to spend some time together yeah and, and not to digress too much but i do think that on your note looking at a city's food culture is such a great reflection of the larger picture because you get a really good uh a really good understanding of how people break bread together, how people, uh, what their values are towards food and, and the different communities that comprise a commu- uh, comprise a city. And obviously in Toronto and a lot of other Canadian cities, uh, our identity is built in the fact that we have so many identities too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's really nice. It's kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I shouldn't try and offend 300 plus million people, but it's like mm-hmm. the United the United States done right or better. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's got a, you know, it's got public infrastructure that seems to, I mean, I think compared to cities across the border in the United States seems to work. Um, you know, I'm sure there, of course there are challenges. It's one of the biggest cities in the world, um, but the city's pretty. It's extraordinarily clean. The traffic to me doesn't seem bad, but yeah. I'm sure <laughs> the city where traffic is bad uh and yeah i think it's a it's a great spot but canadians are often very down on themselves can you know be awfully apologetic for reasons i don't know canadians are always apologizing for things and then sometimes they're sort of almost the inverse of their neighbors um over the border in the u.s people are overflowing of positivity that sometimes comes off as insincere uh and then in canada oftentimes people can be so negative on on themselves and on their country and i really don't think there's any reason to be so yeah well that's part of our mission is to really rebrand what what canadian excellence looks like and and really showcasing that so um a work in progress but um so collision what do you think is the you know collision's unique point of view compared to other tech or business events and platforms around the world what's the what's the pov good question i mean <clears throat> we have a lot of stages and we try not we ourselves try not to take a a particular view uh, on the world, but provide platforms to people with a diversity of views. Um, they could be geopolitical, they could be on technology. So we'll take technology first. At Collision, uh, you're going to find a lot of people talking about artificial intelligence or AI, and you'll find those that are the biggest promoters, uh, waxing lyrical uh about how transformative and wonderful AI is going to be. And then on the other side, you'll find voices who say, 
hold on a second. This technology is dangerous. It needs to be regulated and we must uh, slow down. So, you know, it's in, in a sense, we're, we're like a parliament where there are lots of people with a diversity of views and viewpoints and we as best we can within reason, within some parameters uh, provide a platform um, to those people. Um, and the same applies on matters of geopolitics, which often creeps into our tech conferences. The question might be why? Um, well, you know, pick up any newspaper or consume news media about the rest of the world and you'll see that right now within tech there's in particular uh i would say disagreements between let's say the united states and china over semiconductors or uh, other technologies and so that then bleeds into some of the discussion that you'll end up finding uh at our events but then our events comprise of nearly 20 stages and those stages represent industries as diverse as fashion and music and sport and you know it's not not often the people in those stages are discussing, sometimes they do, but mostly they don't discuss geopolitics and semiconductor uh, independence. Uh, they're discussing their own industries, fashion, sport, music. Um, uh, and that's that's Collision. Collision just is a amazing gathering of people from so many different industries that you'll find discussion and speakers on pretty much any topic uh, under the sun. Yeah, a collision of minds and perspectives. Um, you've got some of the most, you know, influential tech and business leaders within arm's reach. From your perspective, lately, what do you think is the most important discussion that we're having right now around technology and business today? Um, great question. I, I think for most of the last 500 years, the West has led the world broadly uh, in terms of innovation, certainly over the last 150 years, that has now changed. Um, the West is um, a laggard in most areas of high technology to China and rapidly falling behind in those areas as China shoots ahead. Um, and soon China will dominate every single um, materially significant sector of technology. So the failure of the West to continue to innovate faster than the rest of the world is becoming uh, an increasing uh, issue. And I think the big emerging debate of the coming years is, is our model um, in the West good enough? Could it not be better? Are the things we should improve? Or do we need to rethink how we organize and run our societies uh, entirely? And I, I, <clears throat> I think there'll be a growing percentage of the population in the West who will um, seek or believe that we probably should abandon um, many of the uh, models of development or innovation that we have been pursuing in the West because they don't seem to work as well as in, um, as in China. And, uh, you know, I think China owns the 21st century and they might increasingly own intellectual discourse uh, in the West with regard to how we are going to live and organize uh, our economies because it's mm. not working as well um, as it perhaps uh, should be. And maybe there are things that we can learn from China. Yeah, I mean, I guess building that on that in a way, what do you think when you're looking at today's landscape, what do you think is the biggest hurdle for entrepreneurs today 
And conversely, what's the biggest opportunity? Uh, is it linked to that or is it, are you finding other kind of larger dialogues that are happening out there? Yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, rates of entrepreneurship are relatively the same, irrespective of your level of educational attainment. So, you know, if you manage not to finish kind of high school, the probability that you will start your own business is no different to someone who maybe not just gets a PhD, but is a postdoctoral uh, researcher. The, the large and ever-growing difference is the type of company scale and sophistication of company founded by somebody who doesn't manage to finish high school versus somebody who finishes uh, with a, a PhD or further postdoctoral uh, research. Um, someone with a lot of education will tend to, uh, on, a, uh, <clears throat> on average, there's always exceptions, create a much larger, much more economically successful and sophisticated uh, company than somebody that drops out of, um, uh, of high school. Um, and, you know, for me, I think sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that more education is a bad thing and that really what everybody should do is just go and try create a business. And of course, sometimes people uh, with very limited amounts of of education can create amazingly sophisticated and successful businesses. But on average, uh, if you want to build a, a, a business, the overwhelming data says you should try and become as educated as is possible and you should spend several decades working for someone else. The best age to start a company that's going to be ultimately successful uh, is in your 40s. Um, and it, of course, is incredibly appealing to start a company in your 20s. There are so many great kind of Hollywood movies about people dropping out of university and creating a multi-billion dollar uh, company. But, you know, when you zoom out and you look at all of the data uh, and all company formations and all company failures and all company successes, uh, you're far better off to spend time working in your particular niche or your particular particular industry, learn a lot about it, uh, and then uh, think uh, about starting a company. But again, as with all these things, there are, of course, exceptions uh, to the rule. But in general, it's a better idea to try educate yourself as highly as possible and try learn as much <clears throat> or gain as much experience working in, the, in an area of the economy or an industry that you might be passionate about, or you might one day consider to, to start a company within. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting, too, because I think um, you know, over the last 10 years, what I've noticed from the media side too, is this kind of interesting dialogue that has evolved where, uh, initially entrepreneurs were like the new rock stars and mm -hmm. it was so, uh, you know, they were the new celebrities, the new musicians and actors. And, uh, so much was so much value was based on, you know, how much they were, able to fundraise and become unicorn companies and everything like that. And now the dialogue is kind of, or I guess the, the tone has changed a little bit where, you know, obviously we have big leaders that we are celebrating and everything, but there is, there seems to be a bit more, um, of a, a critique, I guess, on, uh, on the business leaders and, and, and a move away from the sensationalism, at least from my perspective of what I've seen, what, what have you noticed on your end? Yeah, I think I think you're entirely right. I, I think we live in societies in the West where there are increasing levels uh, of <clears throat> inequality. Um, and very understandably, there are 
growing levels of frustration and cynicism towards those who accumulate outsized amounts of money in society, often making no contribution back to the society that they have profited from being part of. That is, they are you know, not paying their fair share uh, of taxes as just kind of one example. Mm-hmm. On top of that, over the last half a decade, um, I think there has been very well documented cases of wrongdoing um, in uh, entrepreneurship, in tech and startup land. There's been some great movies, some great documentaries, and that contributes, I think, to a healthy, a healthier skepticism uh, around a period of hero worshiping of um, of entrepreneurs. You know, yeah. I, uh, you know, our our societies are held together by more than entrepreneurship. Uh, that has been the case. That is the case, and that will always be the case. And venerating or elevating some subset of our uh, our society to a higher altar than everyone else, I don't think is ever um, a good thing. Entrepreneurs, for sure, you know, have a role to play, but artists have just as important uh, a role to play. It might necessarily result in, you know, huge financial paydays, but that shouldn't matter, I don't think. And mm-hmm. uh, society should, you know, so- society is com- complex, it's multi-layered, it's diverse, and... Um, Frankly, there's been too much, is it, idolation of, uh, of, of entrepreneurs. And I think the reset is, frankly, quite healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were previously, you previously were the executive director of Rock the Vote Ireland back in 2007. So you clearly have a passion for cultivating community and pushing uh, or facilitating dialogue and conversation. In your experience, what has been really key to building the collision community and how have you managed to get people on board that ship? Uh, Obviously, you've got a few years under your belt now, but at the beginning, what was difficult about getting people on board with your mission? It's a a great question. A lot of our customers or our our speakers are amongst, you know, they're incredibly busy investors. They, for example, don't live in Toronto. Many of them are on the West Coast of the United States. They're managing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars uh, in other people's money that they're supposed to be investing as prudently as possible. They don't waste their time. Uh, So if you waste their time by inviting them to your conference and they don't find value in that event, they'll vote with their feet and they won't come back. Mm. Um, and that extends, I think, to the attendee base, our customer base uh, at large. So we're under pressure to ensure that we help provide value for as many, you know, very busy, successful uh, people uh, as possible. Um, we can't, you know, we can't succeed all of the time for everybody that comes to to Collision or Web Summit. Um, but we have to try our best and there's only so far marketing can get you at the end of the day, at least in, in our world, you've got a highly networked, connected group in particular, let's say of venture capitalists and just waste their time once you'll never see them again. And that's a daunting undertaking for anybody organizing uh, a tech conference. We've been very lucky that, you know, there are some great investors after many years 
uh, coming to uh, coming to the event. But we're also mindful that you know next week, in a few days' time, if Collision doesn't uh, deliver value for these people, we we will just never see them again. So uh, you know that's that's true in most businesses. You have key customers, and you waste their time. You deliver a crappy product, and uh, they won't use or buy your product um, uh, ever again. So. Yeah, well, time is the most valuable currency. So, um, and back in 2019, you brought Collision to Toronto from New Orleans. Um, what do you what is what is unique now that you've had a few events in Toronto? Um, what has been unique about Canada's tech and entrepreneurial ecosystem in attracting mm-hmm. a global audience such as yours? It's a great question. Um, one of the things I've noticed. Uh, about Canada, and I think Canada does, doesn't do a good job telling this story, is that Canada has absolutely world-class universities. Um, take Waterloo, uh, for example. It's sort of like the secret engineering school of, of Silicon Valley. Now, it's it's unfortunate that Canada is training so many engineers that as soon as they get their sheet of paper or they graduate, they're on a plane oftentimes to San Francisco or Seattle uh, or elsewhere. What's heartening is that increasingly those graduates are working for Canadian uh, tech companies. They're in some cases starting uh, their own companies. And um, this doesn't per se answer your question perfectly, um, but I just think it's uh, it's incredible. Uh, Canada obviously has invested in its higher education system for a sustained period of time and it probably quite significant levels. And I'm sure there's debates in the country saying we're wasting money that we're throwing it at our universities and various research laboratories. But from my eyes, from the data I've seen, uh, it does appear to be uh, working pretty uh, spectacularly. And it's also a reason why so many um, international tech companies have opened up offices over the last number of years in Toronto, uh, Ottawa, Calgary, Vancouver, and elsewhere, the base of highly educated uh, talent, in particular engineering talent, is is profound. It's, it's very impressive. Yeah. And so now it's been about four years since the decision was made to move to Toronto. Uh, obviously, we had a little bit of a, a pandemic in between there. But looking back, what are some of the key takeaways from your residency here versus other cities and how is your experience stacked up against your initial expectations when you first uh, moved to Toronto for the event? Great question. Event was much smaller. It's uh, absolutely beat uh, expectations. I'm impressed in particular by the political leadership of Canada. This is a G7 country. It's one of the biggest economies uh, on earth, Uh, but several uh, Canadian ministers are finding the time to come to collision. And I think that underlines both an understanding and a commitment uh, to the sector. You won't find that understanding or commitment in many other Western uh, economies. Uh, Currently, politicians are, I don't know if the word is distracted, uh, but they're preoccupied certainly um, with other things. Um, (laughs) So I have to say, I have to say that's, you know, from the first event that um, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, came to and, you know, spoke very well and met with a tremendous number uh, of people, um, to the participation of several um, cabinet ministers, that's um, that's impressive. Um, uh, it's also, I think, hard for people sometimes to realize just how big Canada is geographically. It's just absolutely gigantic. It's yes. ludicrous. It's like, 
you know, shorter for me to fly back to Dublin, Ireland, than it is for me to get to the other side of Canada. And um, uh, I think from afar, people just see Canada as, oh, it's just one country. But actually, it it is really a country with lots of little countries within it, or you call them, uh, you call them provinces. Definitely. And, uh, it's great to to do an event in Toronto and to see participation at such high levels from Montreal, but also from Vancouver, that's on the other end of the country. The mayor of Vancouver uh, is is coming, and again, I think that underlines within Canada how seriously the political leadership, both at a federal level and a provincial and a city level, uh, are taking uh, tech and innovation uh, in general. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in Ontario itself as well, just speaking to your how how big Canada is, you can drive for 10 hours and still not leave this one province. So it is a very, very big, uh, big province or big country. Um, ultimately, what does impact mean to you through the lens of collision? How do you define it? What's your own internal measure of impact? And how do you kind of communicate impact sure. uh with regards to the, the the event, wonderful question. We think about it in a, in a number of ways. So we have a community team, uh, and for them, uh, impact uh, is about engaging with underprivileged and marginalized communities uh, across Canada, involving them in the event, uh, also increasing radically the participation of uh, female entrepreneurs as compared to a traditional tech uh, conference and female uh, executives. And I think that team are, you know, are rightly proud of the uh, work that they have, the work that they do and the inroads that they've made with, uh, with these communities um, in Canada and also including marginalized communities uh, in the United States, Brazil and elsewhere that participate uh, in Collision. For other teams within the organization that, um, that I get to work in, um, what matters to them is, you know, the number of, of, of top tier investors that are meeting with great startups over the course of the three days um, at, uh, at Web Summit. It's, I guess, the largest gathering of venture capitalists in, in North America, um, a huge number of, of, of VCs from the United States. They may only come to Canada, you know, once a year and they do it for uh, collision. And uh, hopefully there are, you know. These people aren't flying from Silicon Valley, you know, for a for a fun time. I mean, they're here for a serious business. Their job is to find the highest potential startups they can possibly find in the world and write big checks. Um, and hopefully they find uh, a couple of kind of Canadian startups. They're busy people. I'm sure their calendars are full up. But if there are good Canadian startups out there, these are the investors that um, those startups, I'm sure, um, will want to meet. So. Yeah, that's impact in uh, in in another way. Th- th- those are just two examples. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I want to take a few steps back and just rewind a little bit too uh, to talk about kind of your early inspirations and influences. You grew up on a farm in Wicklow, Ireland, which is yep. otherwise known as the Garden of Ireland because of its natural beauty. Which sidebar? I literally interviewed someone four hours ago today that was also from Wicklow. So this is no. an interesting coincidence. Wow. Uh, but how did a a young Patty who grew up in the Garden of Ireland grow up to build one of you know the world's biggest tech platforms and communities? What were some of your earliest ambitions 
as a kid growing up. Um, is this uh, what you saw yourself doing? No, I wanted to be a professional tennis player, but I absolutely categorically wasn't good enough. And I realized that by about the age of 12. But I also grew up in a house, you know, where I was surrounded by computers. My dad was a farmer, but he was completely obsessed with computers, all of the earliest computers in their various forms from Apple to the earliest um, sort of pocket computers, a Scion, uh, which was a British manufacturer, uh, gaming consoles. And that was kind of the world I, I very much uh, grew up in. And I always wanted to do stuff in tech. And through a series of you know, lucky chances, I you know, ended up organizing a, a tech conference, which was really a pub crawl in Dublin back in the day. And that was the genesis really of, um, uh, of, uh, of Web Summit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I also grew up in a, a small town surrounded by a lot of natural beauty. And growing up, I wanted to get out of it because it was just a small town. But now, in hindsight, I am so thankful for that experience. How do you think that small town philosophy has influenced a global perspective for you, if anything? Wow, how, small town. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I now live in the countryside once more with my wife, where she's from in the northwest of Ireland uh, in a place called Donegal that honestly is the most beautiful part uh, of, uh, of Ireland. It's just epic beauty. It's on the Atlantic um, and I, I, I kind of love it. I don't know. I, I, I do wonder if growing up in the countryside has any has had any effect on me. Um, I hope it has. I've spent 20 years living in, in Dublin, which is half my life. And I've a huge love for cities and well-designed urban areas. And I also, you know, I'd spend most of my weekends, uh, in the countryside. And if you can enjoy the best of both worlds, you know, it's, it's good for, you know, I'm sure your mental health, uh, and good for your physical health as well. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you learn to be an entrepreneur? You know, obviously it's, it is something you, I guess you can go to school for, but really, you know, it is the real world where you are able to acquire a lot of those valuable skill sets and experiences. Where did you first foster that spirit of entrepreneurship that has really fueled your career trajectory? That's a great question. I think as a kid, I, I was always just doing things. I was, you know, buying penny sweets wholesale and bringing them to school and selling them to my friends, um, you know, making pocket money that way, as, as most kids do. Everyone is, there's latent creativity inside everyone. And then it just manifests itself in, in different directions, given different circumstances. Um, and I always in college, for whatever reason, I never wanted to work for anyone. I just wanted to, to, to do my own thing. I'm not driven by you know, money, I don't own fancy things, fancy clothes, I have a nice Apple watch, that's about the extent of it. Uh, but I am very interested in in creating um, things um, that hopefully are nice and beautiful. And uh, Web Summit is, is one example of that. But I've tried to do other things as well, sometimes less successfully, but that's just, that's just kind of latent, uh, inside me. And it's what I get a kick out of, um, out of doing. And looking back on your career so far, is there a key moment that really defined the business leader that you are today mm -hmm. or where you are today, or has it been more of an evolution? Uh, or did you have like a, a, a key turning moment? 
Um, honestly, I think one of the most important things for me was reading the uh, United States National Security Archives, which are held in George Washington University, which I first started reading in 1996 when George Washington University started digitizing um, U.S. State Department and CIA memorandums. And it gave me a, a window into how the world really worked and all of the terrible, terrible things the United States uh, had been doing around the world, uh, at least since uh, World War II. So these are documents released under FOIA, Freedom of Information, um, over, <clears throat> depending on the classifications, five years, 10 years, 35 years, 50 years uh, after something may have occurred or or, or been discussed. And I, I was obsessed as a kid and just reading everything about, like, why was the U.S., why did the U.S. terminate uh, and remove a, a democratically elected leader in Guatemala in 1954? You know, why were they doing the same in Iran in 1953? What was their interest in the Middle East? And in these documents, you have these incredible frank discussions that the U.S. couldn't give a shit about human rights, all that mattered was control of the splendid energy reserves in uh, in the Middle East. And they would do everything in their power uh, to control these energy sources, not because they necessarily needed them, uh, but because control over oil would give them leverage over um, people they call their allies, but really people they just wanted to be subservient to them. Could be the European Europeans or the Japanese or whoever it happened to be. Um, and that was the most powerful window, I think, uh, onto the world. I was so young, I had no idea really how the world worked. I consumed American culture through Hollywood uh, and this window um, into US, actual U.S. actions around the world uh, changed entirely my, my view of uh, potentially how the world worked that it wasn't really about ideology it was just about um it was about power and for the united states and those running the united states they were interested in maintaining the united states role in the world and possibly ex expanding um <clears throat> u.s influence uh, in the world and their interest was not you know to expand human rights or really to promote democracy it was the protection of u.s business interests uh, everywhere in the world and uh Reading about that was definitely the most powerful window uh, into kind of how the world worked. And in some ways, that's kind of infused my thinking in terms of organizing a, uh, a large um, a large event. I also grew up beside Great Britain, which mm. historically was the hegemon, the dominant empire uh, on Earth. And I don't, you know, large countries look after large countries' uh, interests. There's nothing radical in what the United States might have done around the world in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's my, that's my view. It, quite a, a formative, uh, <laughs> moment. It sounds like it's, I, it's, it's totally weird. Like it's kind of totally random, but <clears throat> I have to say it's, uh, it was an amazing education in and of itself. Yeah. And have you ha always had a strong sense of, identity and purpose like how long did it take for you to find your voice as a leader today and and your own perspective i don't think i don't think i've i don't think i will ever fi find with any degree of certainty my voice or my perspective my perspectives on on, on things i would hope are always open for improvement uh, or change uh, so little in life um I, I think is ultimately certain as as human beings, we only understand or comprehend or know a tiny fraction of 
what there is to to know or comprehend uh, about the world and uh, you know i'm always i'm somewhat nervous about expressing forthright opinions on what's going to happen in the world or what should happen in the world i'm much more comfortable just talking about you know, small bits of history that have happened in the past, because there's at least some degree sometimes of certainty around, you know, events uh, in the past. And maybe they help us think about things in the present. Uh, but as regards the future, I'm always massively uncertain, because I think it's just very difficult to speak with great certainty uh, about the about the future. And I'm, you know, have I found my voice? I don't think so. You know, my perspective is always evolving. And um you know, try as best I can to remain somewhat kind of humble about, <laughs> about my capabilities. I mean, I guess on that note, what, what kind of gives you courage to really not only stand up for your own ideas, but also <laughs> tackle kind of scary problems or scale daunting mountains? I mean, this collision and, and all the other events that you throw around the world, that sounds from my perspective, extremely daunting. So what do yep. you use to fuel yourself uh, from that standpoint? Um, I think with uh, high degrees of privilege of which I was largely born into, um, you have more room than most other people to do what might be considered courageous things because, you know, the the downside of failure uh, is essentially reduced radically because you kind of have this invisible social net that oftentimes people don't think about. And I you know, I, I lament at the fact that many of the most talented people, young people in our society are held back from, you know, pursuing their creative uh, ambitions because they don't they don't have the, the freedom to even try. They instead have to, out of necessity, seek gainful uh, employment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would like I think that a lot of my courage I don't really think it's kind of courage came from the, you know, being comfortably uh, middle class. And um, I don't think the same can be said about our entire kind of population. And um, it's something maybe that we don't reflect on enough as a society, as a society that oftentimes the, the seemingly brave entrepreneurs uh, actually um, are, have the sort of oxygen or the runway to experiment that comes with the privileged backgrounds that they happen to, to, you know, to be from. And that's something yeah. that kind of, you know, haunts me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, on our, a lot of our interviews, we talk um, to just really leading entrepreneurs and business owners and community leaders and the common denominator, you know, as diverse as our interviews are, is we really like to talk about purpose and mission um, at the end of the day. So what's the big picture for you? What's your mission um, personally and also from a, a business standpoint? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm sometimes uh, inspired by Michael Bay. You know, Michael Bay made Transformers. Yeah. And sometimes I'm at these really, you know, high-end dinners in Washington, D.C. or in San Francisco or London, and people are like, well, what's your favorite movie, Charles? And, you know, they name some, you know, shit art house movie. And I'm like, oh, Transformers 4 by Michael Bay is just, I think, one of the most important movies uh, ever made. And people are like, what? Transformers? I'm not aware of this. What is it? And then some people are, and they're horrified. And I'm like, no, it's really <laughs> because it's the first time in Hollywood, you know, cinema that Hollywood portrays, 
uh, the U.S. government is sort of corrupt and inept, uh, and China is there to rescue planet Earth from the evil alien robots. Uh, and for me, that's like a civilizational uh, turning point uh, in terms of, um, in, certainly in terms of, uh, in terms of kind of uh, Hollywood. I don't know why I'm explaining this to you, by the way. I've I love of, it. This is a great but, anecdote. <laughs> that's the kind of mission and purpose. Like, I don't know if I have any, if I have any mission in the world, it's like, I just would, I would just like countries to stop fighting with each other. You know, like we're just, we're, a singular species that lives on a singular planet in this vast universe. And like, we really need to figure out how to all kind of, you know, get along. And, mm. you know, I don't like the, you know, you know, we just have to less demonization, uh, less veneration, you know, all countries do shitty stuff. And if you centralize power, you know, it corrupts people uh, and you need, you know, transparency and accountability. And, you know, to me, these are important things. And I try through our conferences sometimes to, you know, to highlight some of these issues, don't always do a good job. But um, I'm also, I don't know, this doesn't answer anything. These are, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a mission in terms of my uh, values. I think I'm, uh, I, I'm quite drawn to anarchism, you know, and anarchism is ultimately non-hierarchicalism um i think you know small non-hierarchical teams when you talk to the ceos of the biggest companies on earth which are just giant autocracies they marvel at the ability of small flat non-hierarchical teams to innovate that's essentially what a startup is by the way uh, and you look at science in general that progresses because it's non-hierarchical. People don't decide what is a good idea or not. That was what happened pre-Galileo when the bishops decided what was a good idea or not. And Galileo said, no, there should be basically a scientific method and something is either you know, true or at least the best working hypothesis for something or not. Mm. Uh, and that is how society has progressed along these sort of <clears throat> non-hierarchical ways that uh you take wikipedia for example i was just watching something with jimmy wales i mean wikipedia is effectively sort of non-hierarchical the internet itself is kind of is non-hierarchical there isn't a committee that says this is the most important website or that is the most important website there's a, a higher degree of sort of to a point by the way um non-hierarchicalism uh, about it so i'm, I'm quite driven i'm quite drawn towards the overall philosophy of uh, of anarchism which i think gets a gets a bad name with anarchy which just kind of means chaos but actually anarchy uh, or anarchism essentially just means uh you know it's about non-hierarchies it's about more democratic methods uh, of running a, uh, a a society uh, and i think um i think there's a there's a degree of truth in that it's not all good but there's something sort of seductive uh, about anarchism uh well from transformers to galileo to anarchism i think that is a, a very powerful way for us to end our big interview here and i really appreciate your time uh i want to do a quick speed round just based on you you being in toronto uh, in Canada and Collision here just to end off our interview in a light way. How does that sound? Great. Love it. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite Toronto restaurant to grab a bite so far? 
<laughs> Roses in Hotel X because it's just where I'm based most of the time. So it's super convenient. I know there are better restaurants, um, but it's just, it's the one right now. There you go. You've got a few free hours in the city. What are you doing on your time off? Tennis. Tennis. I, Hotel X also has a huge tennis court, by the way. So that's very convenient. Yeah, it's great. I I, uh, I played uh, tennis this morning, played tennis last night, just try to sneak in a sneaky hour of tennis uh, as much as possible. Nice. If you're uh, you're catching up with friends, do you have a local buddy or ambassadors that you can relax a bit with? Uh, and if so, who are they? Sunil Sharma, who's the head of Techstars in Canada. Yep. What's the most touristy thing you've done while visiting here? Worn a maple leaves hockey Jersey, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What what would you say is the least touristy thing that you've done? Watched a Raptors game. Oh, okay. Um, what's a Canadian stereotype that lives up to its reputation? Hmm. Just so nice. Canadians are so nice that you're almost like suspicious. <laughs> There's some sort of giant conspiracy. <laughs> and is there any misconception about Canadians that you've uh, realized over the past few years? They don't all speak French. Nope, not indeed. Um, favorite collision memory in Toronto so far? Uh, meeting Carmelo Anthony was a bit of fun. Um, I have to say Justin Trudeau is very charming um, and going for dinner, going for dinner with Seth Rogen. That is a, a hit list for sure. That's great. Last question, not necessarily related to Toronto or Canada or Collision, but if you wrote a memoir, what would the name of that book be? Anarchy. Okay. Love it. Love it. Uh Patty, thank you so much for your time um, and your insight. You. It was so nice to chat with you again. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you liked, who you'd like to see on the show, and anything else you want to share. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?